Acts chapter 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared, neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tar from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that through this passage, you would teach us what it means to be truly converted from the inside out. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to be very much in tune with what you desire to say to Good News Church today, the ways that you want to challenge them and encourage them and lead them on the path of the word to follow Jesus with all their heart and with all their strength. And I also pray, Lord, for any that may be here today who are perhaps exploring Christianity who are investigating all the things that they've heard about, that this may be a day where they feel drawn closer to you, a day where they hear your gracious invitation to lay down their lives and to put their faith and trust in you. Lord, wherever we're at today, may we be open to the word that you want to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so today's message is going to be talking about conversion. And I know that in New York City, when you hear people talking about conversion, you tend to have a little bit of a negative, uh, a negative kind of perception of conversion. I mean, nobody likes the idea of being converted or, or of Christians. When New Yorkers hear about Christians going out and trying to convert people, uh, you know, people get kind of a negative feeling about that. And I remember a funny story that my wife told me. My wife uh, grew up Presbyterian, but she was attending a Baptist camp. And uh, they had a show of hands for all the kids that had converted somebody. 
And the friend that had brought her to camp raised her hand and looked over and smiled at her. And Christy realized that her friend was raising her hand because she was very proud of herself for having converted Christy, my wife. But Christy was always a Christian. She just wasn't Baptist. So, so you know, that gave her kind of a negative feeling. Now, on the other hand, I was at Redeemer once, and I heard Tim Keller give a sermon. He was talking about conversion. As he was talking about conversion, I'm like, I'm like, that sounds so beautiful and wonderful. I want, I want that. I want what he's talking about. And then I had to be like, oh, Ben, you've already, what are you, are you foolish? You've already been converted. So my, my hope today is that as I'm talking about conversion, what, what is this thing called conversion? That maybe uh, it, it appears more beautiful to you. And if you haven't experienced it already, that you want it. You want to taste that. And if you have experienced conversion already, then you go deeper with it. and You understand what it's all about. Okay, so I don't normally do the traditional kind of three-point sermon, but this passage just so beautifully, uh, you can go to the next slide, this passage just so beautifully um, had three points that just kind of jumped out. And so, you know, oftentimes conversion takes many years. Uh, In New York City, it's not unusual for a conversion to take two, three years uh, you know, I've been a pastor here in New York City and uh, for a long time, and uh, maybe there's somebody that I'm reaching out to, I'm sharing the scriptures with them, I'm sharing the gospel with them. You know, it could take two, three years for them to come to a point where they finally accept Jesus, right? And in, so, sometimes it takes 10 years or 20 years. So there's really, what we're seeing happen in this passage, what we just read about this, this incredible encounter that Paul has with Jesus, or he's called Saul at this time. His conversion takes three days. And so really what this is like, it's like a, it's like a condensed version of what a conversion is. And so we're going to put it under a microscope. And because it happens so quickly and it's condensed, we can kind of see that it has certain features which are going to be instructive for us as well. And so the three points that we see uh, in, that come out very clearly in this uh, story are, number one, that we see the the nature of conversion, we see the source of conversion, and then we see the the result or the uh, the purpose of conversion. So, first of all, the nature of conversion. When we're talking about a conversion, what are we talking about? And the story begins with Saul, who is very very zealously uh, trying to find and rout out the Christians that are in Judea at that time. So he is a very, very zealous Jewish person, uh, having grown up uh, as a Jewish person, highly educated. He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. And Saul thinks that he is doing God a great, great service by going out into all the country and trying to identify as many of these Christians as he possibly can and then capture them and haul them off to jail. And just a a chapter or two prior to this, uh, we see uh, that the first martyrdom after Jesus takes place where Stephen is martyred and the text says that the young men who were stoning Stephen to death take their clothes because you don't want your clothes to get bloody when you're stoning somebody to death. So they take their clothes and they lay them at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that's this guy. So Saul is very much committed to God, his understanding of God. He is extremely, extremely on fire and zealous for God. But the thing that we learn uh, from this passage is that he was dead wrong. His zeal was completely, completely misplaced. Now, the funny thing about Saul is Saul didn't even know he be, had needed to be converted. Uh, he had no clue at all 
that anything that he was doing was wrong. From his perspective, he was doing God and doing Israel a great, great service by trying to snuff out Christianity. And that was really what he's doing. It's not that he hates Christians. It's that he thinks that the whole Jesus movement and the whole Christianity thing is a perversion of Judaism and that it is a threat to their way of life. And so he thinks that he's doing this incredible, incredible thing, and yet God, you know, appears to him right in the middle of his mission, his, his murderous, bloodthirsty mission, and stops him in his tracks, knocks him on his butt, and then blinds him. And in that moment, and in the subsequent days that follow, <clears throat> Saul comes to the realization, the startling realization, that everything that he believed, and all his zeal, and all his passion, and his entire worldview, his entire way of seeing his life and seeing what the world is about was completely, completely 100% dead wrong. That's what happens. And so what are we seeing about conversion then? What does this say about conversion? Conversion starts with the radical realization that your life was headed in the wrong direction, the absolute wrong direction, that your way of thinking, that your way of your priorities, your values, your belief system, that, that it, was, it was headed in the wrong direction and it was headed towards a very bad end. Conversion is not an add-on to your life, but it is a completely new life. It is a, a, a complete 180 turn. You are headed in one direction, and uh, God comes in and changes your direction completely. So that, that's conversion. Uh, conversion is very, very drastic. And, you know, if we enter the story a little bit, and especially we look at verse 9, right? And verse 9 says that Paul, after he's been blinded, he finishes the trip to Damascus, and he's just sitting there, but he's not eating or drinking, and so as a good Jewish person, I think we can, we can read into the text a little bit and we can figure out what's going on here. He's fasting, right? He's in shock, but he's fasting. And if he's fasting, he's praying. And in those three days, I, I think the realization of what has happened, this Jesus whom he hated, this Jesus whom he did not believe in, he was killing people in, on behalf of God, and now God has completely, completely shattered his self-understanding and his understanding of the world. Uh, and so those three days of not eating anything, of praying, must have been the most overwhelming time as realization upon realization are, are just, you know, pouring onto him, uh, uh, realizing how dead wrong he was. Uh, this, we can think about the spiritual significance of blindness. And why does God blind him? God shows up and blinds him. And I believe that we can interpret the, the blindness there as evidence that he had prior to meeting Jesus been walking in the dark. He'd been walking in the dark. And so he is blinded because now he realizes that everything he believed, everything he thought had been completely wrong. Now he has met the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus is uh, completely reorienting and redirecting his life. That's a little bit about what conversion is, right? So people, uh, we are, you know, we are consumers. Uh, we are experts at curating the best possible life for ourselves. I mean, this is kind of the modern approach to life, right? Is that we try so hard to 
to, to, to manage our lives. We try to set ourselves up so that we can enjoy, the, have the best possible experience of life with technology in the 21st century, right? So we want to set up ourselves. We want to meet the right person, get the right job, get the right education, get the right items on your, uh, on your resume. We want to set our lives up so that we can avoid suffering as much as possible. And we want to set everything up and arrange everything so that we can enjoy things as much as possible. And I think that that uh, mentality, that kind of consumer mentality, also feeds into sometimes uh, our approach to Christ and our approach to what conversion is about. Because as we are trying to arrange things for ourselves, we tend, I think sometimes the modern approach, we tend to think of Christ or we tend to think of the gospel as something that, you know, we have this life that we're managing. We have this life that we're trying to enjoy to the max. And, and Jesus is this, like, add-on, this, uh, this, this extra thing that will kind of sweeten the deal and, and make uh, li- our lives better. Uh, and so you can imagine, you know, if you want to think about it this way, you know, imagine that your, your life is like an apartment. And so you're trying to decorate your apartment. You're trying to fix whatever might be wrong with your apartment. You're getting on the phone, harassing the super to come in and fix the sink and, uh, you know, fix the bathroom and stuff like that. And you're, you're painting, you're arranging things, you're going to Ikea, you just want everything to be set up real nicely. And so I think a lot of people tend to think as Jesus as like a, an, an interior designer. So we have this apartment, it's our apartment, and we're going to bring him in, and Jesus is going to fix He's going to improve things. He's going to, he's going to take our life and like sweeten it up a little bit. He's going to, if we have little problems here or there, then he's there as a, as a friend and as a, uh, somebody that we can rely on in order to, uh, to make things better. And that, that's not what conversion is. That, that's just not it. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, you know, famous uh, evangelist and pastor, he said that God is not in the business of making bad people good. He is in the business of making dead people alive, right? Conversion is not, is not about we have this okay life, or maybe you don't have an okay life. Maybe you have a horrible life. I don't know. But anyway, you know, conversion is not about, like, I have this situation and I want to bring God in in order to, like, help the situation be a little bit better. The gospel is that apart from Christ, we are dead. We are sunk, like Paul Man, we are, we are zealously headed in the absolute wrong direction, and God, out of complete grace and love, reveals himself to us and, and does a 180 turn in our life, completely changes the direction of our life. The gospel and conversion is about being dead and being made alive. It's not about bringing God in to try to, like, make your apartment nicer, you know, if you're thinking that as your life. But it's like your apartment is burning down, and Jesus says, I'm getting you out of there, and you're going to come in and move with me. That's how big conversion is, right? You know, I think about, I think about uh, a friend of mine who has a really great testimony about how God met him in college. And he was not a Christian. He did not grow up Christian. Uh, but prior, you know, so, so that was his background. But, but in college, his, um, his grades were tanking and his life was falling apart. And he was very much in danger of dropping out of school because his grades were so bad. And so through a friend of his, he was introduced to God. And so he began to give God a shot and thought, maybe God can help me with my exams. So his final semester, he started praying zealously. And God did incredible, an incredible thing in his life in that somehow supernatural 
naturally, he enabled him to be able to, to crank out all his final papers and nail his exam so that whereas he had almost been dropping out at one point, God supernaturally helped him to finish, and he finished really well. And so this was a massive turning point for my friends. But see, conversion, that's not exactly conversion. I'd say that's, that's the first part of conversion. Does God help us? Does God you know, answer prayers. You know, of course he does. Absolutely he does. Does God make our lives better? Absolutely. But the problem is that that's not enough, right? It's not just that God helped, would help him finish his exams, but it's that the very reason and the very purpose that my friend would be doing his exams in the first place has been reoriented. It's not about him anymore. He's not the center of his life anymore, but the, his very approach to school, right, would be about Jesus, Right? It is about the lordship of Jesus coming and becoming central in our lives. That is what conversion is. Prior to conversion, there is something else. There is us, our own agenda, our own ego that is the center of what our life's about. But conversion is that that is death and God rescues us out of death. You know, another way to think about it is like maybe your life you feel like you're in a pit or you feel like you're in a dungeon. You know, and maybe one approach to Christianity is like, well, my life is in the pits. I'm in a dungeon. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, I'm going to invite God to come in here and, and make it a little bit nicer down in this cave that I'm in. But that's not conversion. Conversion is you're in the pit and you're going to die if you're in the pit, but God is going to rescue you out of the pit. He wants to take you out of the pit. He wants to give you new life, right? That is conversion. It's moving from death to to life. It's moving from one way of life with one set of priorities and, and God completely changing you 180 degrees and now Christ is the Lord of what your life is about. In a great passage from Ephesians, look at this, Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgre in transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You were dead. Paul was dead. He was dead meat. 2 verses 4 through 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Christianity and the gospel, conversion, it is not a self-improvement program. Jesus does not come into your life to make your life better. He comes into your life to give you a new life. I, I hope that's clear. I hope I understand that. All right. So that's the nature of conversion. What is the source of conversion? So where does conversion come from? Is it something that we can make happen? Is it something that we can prepare for? Is it something that if we work hard enough, then God will grant us to us? And the, the thing that is very, very clear, very, very clear as we think about the source of conversion is that in the case of Paul, in the text that we just read, the source of conversion is entirely 100% external. It is nothing that he brings to the table. He is not his pedigree. It is not his education. In fact, uh, Paul, or Saul at this time, is the last person in the world who would deserve what happened to him. He completely doesn't deserve it, right? Uh, not only is, uh, you know, not only does he not love Jesus or care about Jesus or believe in Jesus, but it's like the opposite. Saul is out there trying to snuff out Christianity. He is killing Christians. 
He is dragging them from their homes. He is ruining their lives. He is hurting Jesus. And yet, and yet what we see clearly in this passage is that God, you know, this external force, this external higher power comes, and this is a hostile takeover. This is God without any, you know, without Saul deserving it at all, without him having worked for it at all. God comes and, and does this incredible uh, change in his life. So conversion is, is not from the inside out. It is from the outside in, but the result of conversion is an inside out change, right? And so because conversion is this thing that comes from us from the outside, because we can't work for it, because we can't earn it, and because we can't conjure it up, you can't make a conversion happen. It can only happen from an external force coming in. It can only happen as God out of his grace and out of his incredible love, breaks into your life and changes things for you. It is an external force coming in, not something we offer. And if that's the case, then what that means is the only appropriate response to conversion is is surrender. It is only surrender. Uh, It is the same as at Christmas time, and you are gathered around the tree, and somebody just gives you a gift. And what do you do? You, know, you can't work for it. I mean, it's a gift. It's a person just wants to give it to you. All you can do is receive it. And so if it is this external thing coming in, then all we can do is surrender. The way that we receive conversion, the way we receive this gift of God is simply by, by opening up ourselves and say, Lord, I accept. I receive this thing that you want to do. And we see that um, happening in verse 9. And I th- Admittedly, I'm reading into the text a little bit. I mean, verse 9 says that, that Saul goes to Damascus and he's fast. He's not eating food or drink, so he's fasting and praying. But at the end of the, the, these three days, he's going to be baptized. And so I think that we can be pretty certain here that what is happening during these three days is he is going through a radically accelerated process of submitting his entire life to God. Right? He's realizing that up until this point, he thought he knew God. He thought he was doing a service to God, but really he was just serving himself. He was serving his own agenda and that he didn't know God. But now God has revealed himself to him. He's taken away his eyesight and, and he's praying. And, and I got to believe because Paul is, he saw is such a different person at the end of these three days than what he was beforehand, that that is a, a highly accelerated, radical time of Saul just letting go. Letting go, surrendering his will to God. And so as we think about what it means for us as well, it is surrender, right? Conversion is not a process that we earn. You can't work for it. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of conversion. None of us are worthy of conversion. Conversion is a gift. This thing that God does is a gift. Uh, We can open ourselves up to it. We can desire it. I think we should desire it. We should long for it. Uh, But at the end of the day, the only thing that we really can do is accept what God wants to do in our lives. We We can't force God. We can't manipulate it. We can't earn it. We can simply accept because it is, at the end of the day, a gift. And even this faith that we have by which we receive it is also a gift. So look at a couple of passages here. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So this conversion is not something we can make happen. We have to wait on God for it. We have to trust him. 
And ultimately, we have to be willing to surrender. And I, the more I think about it, uh, I think that surrender means obedience. Being obedient is surrendering, right? Because if we think about what it means to surrender to God, well, if we're surrendering, surrendering to God, it means that we're no longer going to try to impose our will on God, but rather that we're going to uh, allow God to impose his will on us. And I think that the, the way God brings about his will in our lives is by teaching us what his commands are and then enabling us to obey those commands. So this idea of surrender or turning your will over to God, it's never abstract. It's always concrete. You know, you can think about it in your own life. You know, what does surrender mean for you? And I think that if you think about it, and if you pray about it, that there will be something that, that comes up in your mind that, you're, that you realize that God is calling um, for more full-fledged, trusting obedience. All obedience is trust. I think that obedience is trust. Obedience is the way we demonstrate our trust. You know, think about, um, just to give an example of this. Uh, so, so the scripture calls, you know, all sex outside of marriage is, you know, is immoral. Is, he calls it fornication, right? It's this biblical word. And I suppose that if you're dating and you very much, are, you know, love this person, that, that you have a desire to be intimate with that person. And of course, you know, sexual urge is a, is a very strong and very powerful desire. That's normal. That, there's nothing wrong with that. And so, uh, you know, a couple that, that they haven't been married yet, they're not married to each other, and yet they experience these feelings, they have these desires, these sexual urges. And yet, so the scripture is saying, you know, there shouldn't be any uh, sex outside of marriage, but are you, the culture and kind of what you're feeling seems to be saying, no, like this is something that's good, it's gonna feel good, and you should, you, you should just go for it. And so then there's a question of following uh, what the law says, following what God's instructions are, or following your own desires. And I think that doing the right thing there requires a radical act of trust. It is an act of patience. It is an act of waiting. And it is a, an, an, a, a type of self-denial that is very uncomfortable, right, for a couple that's really in love and, and stuff like that. It's an incredible act of self-denial. But what it is ultimately is saying, Lord, you know, this is something I want. This is something I desire. This is something that would feel really good. And yet, I am going to trust, I'm going to trust you that this command you've given, that there's a reason for it, that somehow you're going to take care of me, even in the midst of my longing, even in the midst of my desire, that your agenda, God, is not to thwart my fun time or to, to, to you know, to be, um, to be uh, you know, a prude, for us to be prudes about this. But, but Lord, I'm trusting that there is a reason that you're, you know, your, your word has spelled this out in a way. There's a reason, there's a design that you have for human relationships and for marriage and that somehow by doing what you are commanding me to do in this, in the midst of this very difficult situation, that you're actually going to bring about my good. And so you see, you see, trust and obedience go together. And so surrender then is trust. It, it, surrender is obedience to, to God's commands. And God desires to give it, this to us the way we receive it is at, because it is this external thing he's doing for us. Uh, we can only receive it by surrender, okay? And then the last thing, so that's the, 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 the source of conversion. It's an, it comes from the outside. Finally, 
what is the result of salvation? So Saul has been shook. He's been knocked on his butt. God sends Ananias to Saul to help Saul understand uh, what is happening. God is very generous here, and including another brother in Christ to do this. Uh, Ananias, of course, is very terrified, but God says, no, go to Saul, do this. It's going to be okay. So verse 17, I have, it, I have it up. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, and he specifies the Lord Jesus. It's not just the Lord, this God that you've always believed in, but no, it's the Lord Jesus. This is who the Lord is. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Saul has been blind up to this point. Remember, the blindness has spiritual significance. It means that he was living in the dark, that everything that he thought was wrong. And now God is lifting his blindness. And so in the three days, very quickly, this radical conversion has happened. Saul is not the same person. And then Ananias proceeds to baptize him. And we are told he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit confirm one thing that Saul has indeed successfully been lifted by God from death into new life. It is confirmation that Saul has now, he was living in darkness, he was living in death, and now God has granted him salvation unto eternal life, right? God does not give his Holy Spirit, fill people with his Holy Spirit, uh, except as a, as a means of confirming that they are indeed his children. God gives his gifts to his children. He gives the Holy Spirit to his children. So Saul, priorly not a child of God, has now become a child of God. And so we're seeing what is the result of salvation. Uh, the result, on the one hand, I'm sorry, the result of conversion is salvation. Now, quick question. Is that it, though? Does God bring about conversion into our life simply so that we could go to heaven, simply so that we can be saved, and simply so that we can have eternal life? Right? There's more. There's more. And so when it comes to the purpose or the reason for conversion, it's twofold. It's twofold. The first aspect of it is for the purpose of salvation. God brings about this gift of, uh, of conversion in us in order to save us, but that's only the first part. And the second part uh, is what we see in verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So that's the second part. God is not only bringing about a conversion for Saul in order to save him, to bring him to heaven, to make him a child of God, but conversion has a second purpose as well. And it is that God has a very very important mission for Saul to carry out. And that's that Saul, as we all know, a lot of us know that he's going to be called Paul, and he's going to be this incredible apostle who's going to be the one who is going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, preach even to Caesar of Rome, and have this incredible impact. So it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Saul goes from being a person who is trying with all of his might and all the zeal and all the passion that he has to snuff out Christianity, and now he's going to become, arguably, the biggest advocate and proponent of Christianity in the ancient world, all because of the calling of God. And what is more, it is not the man that makes the calling, it's not the person that makes the calling, but it's the calling of God that makes the person. It's switched. 
Saul is the least likely person that God could ever have picked to be his mouthpiece to the world. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He was killing the church. And tradition has it that he was not a good public speaker. Paul says, he says as much. He said, I did not come to you with wise and persuasive words. He says that in Corinthians. He was not a good speaker. He was a horrible speaker. Apparently, he was short and fat. According to tradition, he was short and fat. So why would, why would you pick, why would you pick somebody like this to be your, you know, your voice piece, your, you know, your mouth to represent Christianity uh, to the entire ancient world? Because it's not the person that makes the calling, it's the calling that makes the person. In other words, that's God's grace at work and the God's gift, that he can choose somebody that was not qualified, that did not deserve it, and that his life is headed in a completely wrong direction, and then through the, the supernatural external calling of God on this person's life, he's completely, completely transformed and changed. And so that's the last thing for all of us to be thinking about today, that your conversion, whether you have been converted or whether you are yet to be converted, is not only a conversion into God's family, but it is a conversion into incredible, important purpose. And that every single person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, like Paul, plays an indispensable role in the furthering of God's kingdom. We all have a mission that God gives us. He doesn't convert us just to save us. That's part of it. It's a good part of it. But he also converts us in order to set us on a course whereby we can use his calling, whatever he's placed in our lives, in order to serve him and to glorify him. So two parts. So I'm going to close, I'm going to close now. And uh, I suspect that within this room, there are only three kinds of people. There's only three categories of people. And this, every single one of you falls into one of these three categories, okay? Category number one is you have not been converted yet. Category two is you are in the process of being converted. It's not some person converting you. It's not me converting you. But you are in the process of God working on you, bringing you from death into life right now. Maybe that could be you. Or maybe, um, thirdly, uh, you have already been converted, like, like Saul, by the end of the three days. He's ready to get baptized and be filled with the Spirit and begin living for God. So I have a word for each one of those categories. So to those of you that need to be converted, maybe that's you here today. Is you're like, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been converted yet. You know you haven't been converted yet. So my question to you is, how far do you think you're going to get on your own steam? Because if you haven't been converted, what it means that Jesus is not the Lord of your life, and it means that something else is. If you haven't been converted yet, what it means is that you are still trying to be your own Savior. It means that at the end of the day, you think that you're going to be the one through managing your life and through working hard and through trying to be a good person that you can somehow achieve righteousness in life through that. But the problem is that that is a dead end and it's very, very tiring and exhausting and it doesn't lead to good things. So if you haven't been converted yet, and I'm speaking to you right now, I don't know who, who you are. Maybe, well, there's, maybe there's a few of you in here. But if that's you, then accept the invitation from Jesus to, to get out of the driver's seat and to let somebody else take over. I and mean, if you're struggling right now and your life is in the pits, then that's not a hard thing to do because you know that it's not working. You know that it's not working and that you've been trying really hard to conquer these issues in your life, to manage your life, to fix your problems, but you're just not able to do it. God says, stop trying. Let me help. 
invite me in. You're in a burning apartment. I'm here to rescue you and to bring you into something much better. And so I'd encourage you to accept that offer and surrender. And so speaking to the second category, maybe you are in the process right now of being converted. You're not fully there yet, but you know you've started. And if that's you, then my encouragement to you today is to continue surrendering. Continue learning what it means to to be obedient. Continue trusting. Because really the process of surrender, the process of conversion is a gradual process in which more and more we are handing off aspects of our life that we've been trying to hold on to. There's things that we've been trying to do it our own way, and we've given God control of certain areas of our life. We've let him into certain rooms, but we're still in the same house. We still want that house. And God is saying, just be willing to get rid of all of it and come and live with me. It is about the lordship of Jesus being central in your life. It is about every area being submitted to him completely, you know, with full abandon, no fear, just getting rid of all fear and trusting, trusting that if you hand over these things to God, that he will do the right thing with you. He will take care of you. Maybe that's where the fear is, is that we're not sure. We're not sure whether or not God is really going to bless all those areas. And so we control them and we try to keep a hold of them rather than, uh, than giving it all over to the Lord. So if you are in the process of being converted, grow in your surrender, grow in your trust. And as I mentioned, trust and surrender ultimately boils down to obedience. Are you willing to follow God's commands in every area of your life? And finally, and uh, I, I'm hopeful <laughs> that, uh, that many of you are in this category today, and that is you have already been converted. Uh, you have already accepted the lordship of Jesus. You've been baptized. You've been filled with the Spirit. And so all of this is just a great refresher course for you. And if that is true, if that's you today, then my encouragement to you is the words from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Remember that your calling is twofold. There is the general calling, which is to all of us to become sons and daughters of God. But there is that second aspect of it. It is the calling to mission, the calling to service, just like and it's not because of your talents or skills necessarily, right? It's not the person that makes the call. It is the call that makes the person. Whatever God has called you to do, do it with your whole heart, with complete abandon and trust that whatever he's called you to do, that is the way that he has empowered you to be able to serve the church and to serve his kingdom. Live a life worthy of the calling. Give yourself completely to your conversion. Embrace it and let God be your Lord. Let's pray.